Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is the Dry Cleaner Cast. Welcome to the Dry Cleaner Cast, a podcast that takes a new look at the war on terror, its legacy, and espionage in the 21st century. This podcast is written, edited, and presented by Chris Carr. The Dry Cleaner Cast is a series of podcasts that look at terrorism and espionage in the 21st century. The podcast is a companion to my short film, The Dry Cleaner. We hope by helping people further understand the complexity and sensitivity of the issues that surround terrorism, we can be a part of the necessary debate that will help defeat terrorism in the near future. On today's podcast, I'm joined by David Vidset. David was a counter-terrorism detective for the Metropolitan Police Service in London. He was involved in the investigations of the 7-7 bombings as well as the failed 21-7 bombings. On this episode, we discuss counter-terrorism from a British policing perspective, and we also discuss David's debut novel, The Thesis Paradox, which is a fictional account of the investigation into 7-7 and 21-7. Opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the filmmakers and sponsors of the film The Dry Cleaner. David, welcome to the Dry Cleaner cast and thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Can you just tell us a bit about yourself and how you came to join the Metropolitan Police and end up investigating terrorism and organised crime? Sure. I joined the uh, police, as as most people do, as as an ordinary constable. Um, You apply to go in the police and I joined in the very early 90s um, when things were very, very different. Um, And fairly quickly, um, you know, even within a few weeks of being in the police, um, I sort of realised I had the aptitude for um, something different from just wandering around the streets and stopping people in their cars, really. And, uh, and I, I was quite quickly selected um, to work within the CRD um, in the local station I worked. Um, and I found myself, again, very quickly being involved in some huge uh, sort of gangs and jobs and things. And, and then in about 1999, I was selected to um, go work in organised crime. And I went to work in organised crime um, where, where I had, the unit I worked on had a had a pan sort of London and a, and a countrywide, nationwide uh, remit, and I travelled the country investigating organised crime until 2004. And then um, uh, the anti-terrorist branch, as it was then, uh, was looking to increase its size from 40 to 60. It was a very, very small unit then, uh, and, and I was approached to, to go on that um, and, and ended up investigating terrorism, and I spent the, the next uh, six years there. Wow, that's cool. I bet you must have seen some very... Uh... Yeah, some very interesting things, we put it that way. <laughs> I think it's, it's, it's a lot of people don't realise how similar um, how, it's how similar terrorism and organised crime actually are, and, and, and actually they, they eat out of each other's hands much of the time. And I think it was a really good opportunity um, for me to have done organised crime and then to go into terrorism, which is quite an unusual route, because a lot of people um, don't do it that way. Um, and it made me look at terrorism very differently. Excellent. Well, let's let's talk about terrorism. What is terrorism? How is it different from a violent criminal act? Uh, well, it, it's the, terrorism is defined uh, sort of by its uh, motive and not its method. 
um, a, a lot of violent crime when we look at it from a legal perspective it's um, it's broken down into into certain categories you know a robbery is somebody that carries out uh, a violent act whilst in in, in the, the mode of sort of trying to do something trying to steal something uh, a burglary is somebody who breaks into our house so they, they're, they're categorized in, in lots of different ways and terrorism is categorized by an, an act of violence towards somebody or some group uh, whilst you are, are trying to push a particular political view or um, or to, to sort of change policy or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And as terrorism is defined as a political act, in the UK um, it sort of treats as a threat to national security, isn't it? So MI5, MI5 have the lead on terrorist matters, don't they? And, and you're saying there were some um, potential problems with that. Well, yeah, the um, I mean, MI5 is, is is known as the um, the security service, um, and they're based at Thames House in, in London. Um, they have the lead on on terrorist matters inside the UK, so it's quite un- an unusual relationship for the police not to have the lead on a on a criminal matter because terrorism is is specifically criminal, um, and it's quite unusual for the police not to lead on it. Um, in, in, if something happens anywhere in the country um, and it, it's criminal, the police automatically have the right to do what they want to do. But in a, in a terrorist matter, you, you kind of have this fairly odd relationship with the security service where you have to talk to each other and, uh, and decide what is the best in, best interest of, of national security. And, um, and very often the, um, the security service win that argument. And, and it's decided that a particular route will be followed and, and the police will act in a particular way. Um, so there are an awful lot of problems with the way that relationship works sometimes and, and one which I have been critical of in the past. Yeah, and just going into what those problems are, because one of the things I noticed um, as a reading on your blog that you talk about the, the method of investigation of terrorism is treated quite differently because the skill set between the police and MI5 is quite different. Can you tell us yes. a little bit about that? Well, uh, obviously, the, the two organisations are very different organisations anyway. And um, what the uh, security service want to do is, is they're just about prevention. They're just about ensuring that they have disrupted uh, a plot, they have identified people, and they can go on and continue to identify people and, and stop these offences happening. They stop, stop uh, bombs in the country and, and, and sort of pursue terrorists, as it were. But that is a, is a difficult relationship for the police because obviously the police want to prosecute people. In order to prosecute people, we need evidence. Uh, and evidence, as uh, you know, and we put that in, in inverted commas, evidence uh, that the police see as evidence and, and what the security service see as intelligence are two very, very different things, uh, especially when the security service are dealing with things like um, phone tapping, um, covert recording devices which have been placed uh, in buildings by um, human intelligence res- uh, sources who haven't been haven't been disclosed and, and things like that. So a, a lot of the information intelligence that the, the the security service get cannot be converted into evidence. So you kind of have this um, odd uh, meetings where they say, "Well, we know this is going to happen, and we know um, this has been said." And, and the police are like, well, that's really useful. We need that, and we'll prosecute them for it. And the police security service just refuse to say how they've come by it, or or they can't say how they've come by it. And, and you know, by, by law, we're not allowed to talk about phone tapping. You know, it simply cannot be maybe mentioned in a, in a court of law. Um, so this is kind of a this weird thing. And so, so the police 
um, have specialists who try and go out and try and convert the intelligence into evidence and, and, and often that will involve completely redoing what the security service have already done um, and, and so it, it's quite labour intensive and, and resource intensive uh, and you know one could say well you know if the security service were to open their books and deal with things in a, in a completely uh, transparent manner like the, the rest of the law enforcement community, then, then a lot of resources would be saved and a lot more people would be prosecuted. But obviously there are lots and lots of problems with that. Yeah, no, I can imagine. I can imagine. It must be intensely frustrating as an officer um, investigating these things to have these sort of issues coming up. It is, and, and, it's, it, and it's, to be fair to the security service, you know, there are a, a great bunch of people and, and, they, and they have um, the country's best interest at heart. You know, it's just, just the same as the police do. You know, they're not, they're not there to try and pull the wool over anyone's eyes, but they're, they're very restricted on, on the things that they can say and can't say, but they are uh, very scared of, of, of being transparent. Um, you know, and opening themselves up to the criminal justice system, uh, because the criminal justice system is very intrusive to, you know, to all organisations now, um, especially with disclosure and things like that, you know, and, and, and when, when somebody says, well, you know, this is my defence and anything you have, um, in, in your organisation that you know of, then, uh, I want that, I want you to help me and assist me in my defence of, of whatever crime you're accusing me of. And I think that, that sort of behaviour by, uh, sort of defence solicitors and defence barristers will be very intrusive in, inside the security service. So it's not just simply about, you know, we don't want to, uh, open ourselves up because, to scrutiny, because um, it would be difficult for us, is, is, you know, they're they're trying to protect their sources, they're trying to protect their methods and, and things like that. Um, but you know, the police have, you know, we 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 did the same stuff. You know, we we, we would have covert recording devices, we would have surveillance. Um, and, you know, the only, the only different thing that the security service can do is obviously they can they can uh, hack computers, hack telephones, and um, uh, and and. and uh, tap telephones um, and so so you know they want they want to protect the way they do that uh, and the way they do that is they don't, don't become part of the court process mm. and obviously MI5's traditionally was set up to kind of hunt down Russian spies so it's a very different sort of mindset I suppose isn't it well I don't I, I, don't, I don't agree personally yeah. I mean okay. I, I think you know espionage and, and political murder mm. you know it, they, they are crimes you know mm. just just because some somebody an undeclared uh, spy uh, at the Russian embassy or, or any other embassy you know we we have spies you know in, in our own embassies throughout the world um, and, and when, when you when you go to when you travel to different countries certainly as a as a, you know, as a member of the security service or, or police, um, you know, you you realise that you know that, that is the way the world works. You know, there, there are there are these people that are embedded within uh, our, our government in uh, sort of, and they and they, they that's what they do. They're there to, to cultivate sources and, and to, to gain intelligence and to gain the upper hand against other people. Um, but it's, it's a strange world, and, and I think that um, unless you've been exposed to it, it all seems a bit odd. But you know, spies committing crime in in, in our cities in, in this country—they're criminals, and, and we should deal with them as criminals, and we shouldn't we shouldn't um, look at them as political opponents and, and treat them 
differently. And we've only got to, you only got to look at the uh, murder of, of Litvinenko. Yeah, I was going to mention that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and you know, and, and there, are, there have been others. And, and it's um, I, you know, we we deal with them as criminals, but because a lot of the uh, intelligence is held by by our security services. You know, both um, the the secret intelligence service, which people know as MI6, and the the, the security service, which people know as MI5. Um, you know, they, they hold whole raft of, of intelligence, and it, it's just a case of trying to turn that into something that's usable in a court of law. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, let's let's, let's um, talk a little bit more about sort of terrorism and things. Um, a lot of commentators put a lot of weight behind the religious motivation of terrorists. Um, but is, is Islamist terrorism really about religion, or is religion just a way to recruit fighters for a political struggle, do you think? Well, I think that um, people do see, uh, I mean, when we talk about um, uh, violent extremism and, and certainly Islamism, um, you know, they're, they're, that tends to be the sort of main focus of our media these days. And, and certainly when, when I joined the Young Terrorist Dance in 2004, um, it was split into two. Uh, and, and, the, and the two sections really were um, Irish Republicanism and, and IRA uh, and, and, and Islamism and, um, and, and Islamic terrorism. And then we had a very small uh, animal extremism unit as well. And so, but, but gradually over time, um, sort of the political landscape has changed, and you know, the IRA have sort of surrendered much of their weapons, and they've become much more of a of a criminal gang as opposed to a political force wanting to, you know, drive through policies with, with violent acts. And, and we, you know, following 2001 and 2005 in London, you know, a lot of our focus has been on Islamic extremism. So I think that um, in answer to your question, the uh, a lot of people. Um, they, they just see the religion. They don't see anything else, but it is a veneer. Uh, it is, it's a, it's a shield that, uh, a lot of people don't see through. And they don't realize underneath it, what we're talking about is a straightforward organized gang, a gang who, who are trying to, you know, make money out of something by moving people around, moving drugs around, moving money around. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the, the religious side of it is a front, you know, they, they these extremists raise huge amounts of money um, through charitable uh, things in mosques, you know, extremist mosques and things like that. Uh, and, and the people at the top of the, the, the chain that control these things, you know, they, they live off this stuff. And it, in turn, is, is Islamic extremism is, is, a, is a business, a multi-million pound business. Um, and, and, you know, it's... It, drags in people from from all over the world to do things and you know it's uh people like saudi arabia and qatar you know the big businesses that are involved in in trying to move population away from places which they want to explore for oil or you know or, or there's a dispute over a particular uh place you know you've got to look at yemen and all that sort of thing and, and all, all these struggles they're at their heart it's, it's Tend to be about control of money or control of land, where 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 there's a lot of of valuable resources. Um, but in order to recruit the, the the fighters and recruit people in order for the cause, you know, they they give it this veneer of like, well, it's, it's a religious fight. You know, it's it's the it's the Shias fighting the Sunnis or the Sunnis fighting whoever. Um, and, and and that's and that's what people see and that's what the media see. But it but it is simply a veneer. So you're, you're, they're criminal gangs essentially at their heart quite machiavellian in a way aren't they absolutely yes yes so so you're saying like um religious extremism is pretty much 
a business, um, yes. and it's a bit like the drugs trade. So, in a way, these extremists. What are what are are the extremists a bit like addicts to this material then? Yes. Um, so, uh, violent extremism, and, uh, and it can, I, I look at it very similar to way a drugs importation business works. And so, the people at the top of this chain, their, their main commodity is, is the drug, and it's the importation of this drug or moving this particular drug around the country, uh, passing it up into small pieces, and then selling it off. In order to do that, you need an awful lot of uh, a, a big network of people and people who, who want to make money. But also, uh, as, it, as it filters down the chain further and further, the people that are actually um, taking this drug are also your dealers. Uh, and so, but at the, at the top of the chain, uh, it's simply about money and it's simply about uh, the, the commodity and doing something. But down at the bottom, it's you know they're just the users or people on the street and they, they use the drugs. And so I liken uh, extremism um, is, is at the top of the chain. Um, you have a, you have a criminal gang. Um, and they, they have a particular purpose and they want to make money from. And quite often that will be that they want to facilitate uh, people into training camps, military, military training camps in Afghanistan, uh, northern Pakistan, Sudan, places like that. And, and they, they charge an incredible amount of money for these people to go over there and then to, to run around shooting guns. There's a lot of buttons with guns for a lot of people. Um, and so, so that, that may be the commodity that they're selling. Um, and, but, down at the bottom of the chain is that in order to buy this particular commodity and use it, you've got to be an extremist and you've got to be, you've got to be somebody who thinks, well, okay, this would be a really great idea and, and off they do. And so it, it, it's kind of uh, the people at the top have a completely different view about what is going on to the people at the bottom. Uh, and, and so you have, you have these, these people at the bottom that, that think they're doing something for a particular cause or acting in a certain way and they're encouraged to do it. Uh, but with with religious verses or you know parts of the Quran and things like that. Uh, but actually, when when it's just about making money, and it's just... what kind of what kind of money um, changes hands? So if I were to you know go off and to a training camp somewhere, what kind of money did, would that they charge me to do such a thing? <laughs> Well, three to five thousand pounds for yeah. basic for basic stuff, and and, that, and and obviously that that's money's raised often through criminality as well, you know. So so the, the people that want to go and do this, you know, they, they are either not working or something like that, and they're involved in all sorts of other criminality, you know, insurance for, insurance fraud, drug dealing themselves, theft, you know, all those sorts of things. So it's it's much like a it's much like buying a drug. Because, um, you know, in, in order to fund your habit and fund your way to these things, you, you've got to commit other crime and do other things. So you know, I, I do liken it to, a, to the drugs trade. It's, you know, perhaps some people wouldn't agree with that analogy, but that's how I see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically, I mean, in a way, with this analogy, sort of saying that if I were to go off to one of these training camps, I'd probably have to sort of steal and you know raise money through all sorts of ill exactly yeah. and, and and some and somebody might say to you well if you you know you, you can't just turn up somewhere and say hey i'd like to go to a military training camp you know you'd, you'd have to be vetted you'd have to be in a, in a particular circle and in that particular circle there might be books to sell um you know extremist literature extremist cds to sell and obviously all the time is a money-making enterprise and, and, and they might say that well you've you've got to 
you've got to raise some money for a charity and you know that's got to go through charitable cause and that goes straight in somebody's pocket it is a great big money-making exercise yeah yeah no it's, it, it sounds very much like uh, i won't name them for legal reasons but it sounds like some religious cults we've all heard of exactly <laughs> it, 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 it's, it's no different it is no different i mean i, I was having a um, i was having a discussion funnily enough earlier on with with a former colleague um who still works in terrorism and he, he was sort of trying to suggest well how come we see islamic extremists is very differently to catholic extremists and i'm like well it's, it is very different i don't know i mean i think obviously you know we do have other religions that have that have these sort of extremists in them but they, they don't they tend not to be violent you know they tend not to run training camps where where you can go and shoot guns learn how to make explosives and and then have a little trip across the border and shoot some american soldiers in a tank you know they, they, they kind of not to be that sort of extremist so so islamism is, is slightly different to that Mm, mm. And do you think the perpetrators of the acts are the actual, you know, these people who go off, get their training and then come back here and, I don't know, go and shoot or bomb something, do they really know the full picture themselves? Oh, of course, of course not. No, absolutely not. And, they, you know, they're so um, set up with their own religious ideas and, and their own belief system about why they're doing it. And, and they are brainwashed, you know, and I mean, a lot of them... A lot of the guys, you know, they, they don't they don't go over there intending to die. You know, they go over there with the intention of just getting a few selfies with a, with an AK-47 and saying, yeah, I, I did this. Um, and, and they might come back and, and, and might realise, actually, that was a bit stupid. It's a bit like it's a bit like going and taking the drug for the first time, isn't it? And it's like, you might have a great time with anything, actually. I, I would have probably made a bit of a fool of myself there, and I'm not going to do that again. And I'm sure that happens a lot. Um, but then you have also got the people who's like, oh, I'm, I'm really, you know, I really like it, and they get addicted to it. And it's, and it's those people that then come to the notice of, of security services and, 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 and the police because they, they, they cease to be able to operate in a normal society, and then they, they take on these very, very extreme views about, you know, to justify why, why it would be okay to kill people and why it'd be okay to cut somebody's head off and things like that. And, and again, that's, and it's kind of that as the addiction gets worse and worse and worse. And, and they're seen by their sort of handlers of these, of these places, you know, they, they can be used in particular ways. Mm-hmm. And there's also, I suppose, with some of the people who've gone off to somewhere like Syria or Iraq, they've probably seen, especially if they've gone to join ISIS, they've probably seen some horrific things going on, which must be quite traumatic and have a psychological effect on them as well. Well, exactly. And you can't, again, you can't just, um, tell, you can't just sort of, you know, get on a plane, try, you know, fly to Turkey and then just slip across the border and, and then turn up in, in, in some Syrian town and say, hey, I'm here to fight. Um, it doesn't actually work like that. Again, it's, it's about who you know and, and, and you, you know, you could, you could certainly go to, uh, Syria and say I want to join IS, uh, and they would they would probably give you a job of cleaning up the toilets um, or something like that. And, and you know you'd have to you'd have to show your willingness to um, to, to be part of their gang. And, and it, then it's, and a lot of people do go there uh, and realise it's not for them. But then they can't. But then it's find it impossible to leave. You know because once I think once you've been there, and you think, hey, this is not for me. You know this is this isn't about taking selfies with an AK-47 is actually a bit more serious than that when you watch people being hurled off buildings and, and having their heads cut off and things like that and people being burned for not paying the right tax to, to the state and things like that. I think it, it becomes much more serious. And uh, 
yeah, yeah, there are people that are attracted to that, and obviously every every psychopath in in the world is probably you know, thinks, oh, that I could have a piece of that. <laughs> but um, but uh, there are there are an awful lot that have come back, um, and it has been a valuable listen to them. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, and I suppose like um, also if you went out and joined ISIS and then it wasn't your cup of tea, they, they wouldn't want you coming back as well because they're probably worried that you might give away secrets of theirs. I well, well, exactly. It's, it's not, it, it, and again, you know, it's very much like any of the religious sects you can you can think of. You know, they they don't want you leaving. You don't they don't want you giving away their secrets. Um, and you know, they they it is a one way ticket for many people. You know, and got to look at the you know those those schoolgirls unwittingly went over there and. You know, one of them, one of them is dead now, and stuff like that. I mean, tragic, tragic, tragic stuff. But um, you know, and we're, in hindsight, and we've all done things that we we regret. But uh, in hindsight, you know, it's like, oh, I wish I hadn't have done that. But I think with with situations like this, where you arrive in a place for, like that, mm. there's not a lot you can do about it to get yourself out. Yeah, I mean, those poor girls. How old were they? About sixteen. Sixteen. Yeah. 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 Shocking. Yeah. Absolutely shocking. Well, what do you? This is, this is probably the billion-dollar question here, but what do you think is the most constructive way to debate terrorism and ultimately defeat it? Oh, well, I think um, it's, it's, a, it's a quite a big question. It's not, it's not easy to answer. I think we've got to look at why we have uh, Islamic extremism in the first place. Um, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a very, very strong critic of, of Saudi Arabia, uh, Qatar, and uh, the way that they um, finance a lot of these groups, um, none of this could happen without weapons and money. Uh, and we should not, uh, you know, as a country, uh, we should not be supplying weapons to Saudi Arabia. We shouldn't, we shouldn't be saying that they are an ally. We should not be supplying weapons to Qatar. Um, and, and, and we could quite quickly deal with, with some of the, uh, the issues that, that are created by, you know, why are the, why are these countries Funding extremist activity in Syria, you know, they're, fund, they're funding incursions into other countries. Um, you know, what, what is it, again, what is at the heart of what they're doing? Um, and, I, and I think in terms of ultimately fighting terrorism, I think we, we, we need to clean up our act at a government level before we can, we, before we could get our own house in order. You know, we, we, we need to look at our policies. We need to look at our foreign policy. Um, it, you know, it, Islam isn't the problem. What the problem is, is, is our foreign policies and the way that we are using, um, and, and people like Saudi Arabia are using the, these extremist groups to push people away from countries where they want to, you know, have oil pipelines or, or they, they've got an oil business or they want to gain control of the oil business or something like that. You know, it, that, this, this is where a lot of this stuff starts and, and, and this is where, you know, this is where IS came from. You know, it came, it came from the vacuum created by a war. And it came from uh, you know, people wanting to gain control of particular pieces of land, um, and, and we've ended up here. And then obviously we've, we've got we've got people who you know back end of the business who, who who are funding people to go over there and making money out of the travel, making money out of what's going on. You know the charitable causes back here. Uh, you know there's, there's, a, there's a whole host of problems, and there's no easy answer. But before. Um, and in tandem with sorting out our own house, which is what's going on inside the UK, what's going on inside isolated communities here, and the way that, that certain mosques and certain uh, tenets of Islam uh, sort of operate, before we sort out all that, we need to look at our foreign policy. Yeah, yeah. And um, 
Based on your counter-terrorism experience, can you give us an overview of some of the of the threat posed by groups like Al Qaeda, Boko Haram, and ISIS today? Well, they, they are they are actually very different. Um, you know, Al Qaeda uh, was was obviously what we what we were fighting, and Al Qaeda was a very different organisation uh, to what IS is. Um, and you know, they, again, it was training camps, uh, but it had a, a much more hierarchical command structure. Um, to the way that IS works. And um, so in some ways it was easier to fight Al-Qaeda because it was much easier to follow people. You know, the way the security service work is they, they know who their facilitators are into, into certain training camps or into certain, into certain networks of Al-Qaeda. And it was just a case of monitoring them um, and, then, and then picking up who they were communicating with. And so that in, in some ways that's much easier than the way IS work, you know, because everything's done by remote control. Um, and, and you have these people who um, sort of they, they, they've, never, they've never visited Syria. They've had absolutely no contact with anyone in the network at all. But they bought into the propaganda and they bought into like, I want to be an IS soldier and I want to go and do something. So, you know, the, the term lone wolf, if you'd have asked me um, uh, sort of a few years ago, I, I would have said there was no such thing. But you, we do have these, um, and I can only call them idiots. We do have these idiots that, that, that sort of one one day they, they've taken a bit too much uh, cannabis or something like that. And, and they, they, they arm themselves with a knife and they, they decide to go down to you know, the local tube station and cut somebody's head off. Um, and, and, and so, so those, those sorts of attacks are actually very difficult for us to deal with because, you know, there's probably very little leading up to that. You know, the, the, the sort of more, more complicated and, and, um, and dedicated plots, well, you know, we're going to kidnap a soldier and we're going to, we're going to uh, behead that soldier uh, in the woods and we're going to film it or whatever. You know, when, when they're talking about that with people that are based in Syria and things like that, that's actually much easier to deal with than, than, than the security service and the police. We can get on them, gain the evidence against these groups and, and arrest them uh, before they do it. But um, so, so, so IS is, is a slightly different beast, as it were, you know, because it is much more uh, encouragement uh, and not necessarily direct contact with the network. That's not to say that they, they don't have that, you know, because if you look at some of the bigger attacks, you know, Paris and what, what went on in Brussels and, and Nice, um, I, th- I think there, there, are, there are definitely elements of, of the, you know, there was a wider network and there was a hierarchical command structure. There was money changing hands. There was lots of communication. Um, so they, 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 but they, you know, in addition to that, you do have these these old people who who just sort of decide to go and do something, and and, and I on IS claim responsibility for it. Yeah, I suppose it's good publicity for IS as well, isn't it? If somebody, yeah. you know, every other day somebody's doing something. In their yeah, name. unfortunately, it does. It make it makes it makes the the whole thing look very different to actually how it is. You know, mm-hmm. and, and in terms of trying to win the, um, the the publicity war about, well, you know, what are the police and what are the security service doing about this? You know, it, it is quite difficult. And I say, well, how do you stop somebody getting in a truck and then you know just mowing people down on a promenade? What what are fireworks? You know, is that possible to do? And the answer is, is yes, it is possible, you know, but we, we, we've all got to be singing from the same hymn hymn sheet and we, we, and we've all got to be talking to each other and making sure that this, these pieces of intelligence don't fall for the gaps. Um, but going back to my earlier point, uh, it's about sharing intelligence and it's about not allowing the, these pieces of intelligence to fall through the gap. And I think if you look at what happened in Nice, if you look at what happened in Paris and Brussels, you know, there were lots of opportunities to have, to have picked up on these people and dealt with them. But we might have had to have dealt with them for very, very minor crimes. But let's be honest, putting a person behind bars for 
continuous disqualified driving is actually no different to putting them in prison for for you know uh, some terrorist fundraising. I, you know, it, it's, we need to just be singing the same, same hymn sheet and, and making sure that the, these the people that pose a risk are dealt with as quickly as possible. And and that's and it's crime. And that's and that's what we need to do. And that's why you know it's kind of how we disrupt uh, drugs networks. You know, we, we don't we don't wait for somebody to to import the um, the, the ton of ton of drugs on a, on a yacht into 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 the country um you know we, we we're con- consist- constantly disrupting the minor parts of the of the network and, and causing it problems and that's what we need to do with terrorism and um, going back to your question boko haram boko haram is a totally different beast to 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 anything that we we know um and and it really it's grown out of a um of a, of a territorial dispute with the, with the nigerian government um and in many respects although it's it's pledged alliance to to is um, I, I don't necessarily necessarily see it as a as, a, uh, as a something on, on the same scale with Al Qaeda and IS. Yeah, yeah. And has are you aware of um, any plots in the UK in the past that have been committed by Boko Haram? No, I'm not. No, yeah. I've, 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 ne- I've never heard of uh, heard of anything like that at all. Uh, it, it, it's very, uh, it's a very, very localized group, to my knowledge. Um, and, and you know, yes, they their methods that they use and what they do, they are very similar. And, and in, in terms of, you know, they say they're Islamists and they kidnap people and they, you know, convert people to, you know, and stuff like that. And they might use explosive devices and they certainly attack government troops. But it, it's a very localized issue yeah and one interesting point that you just mentioned kidnapping because that's a lot of money is raised by terrorist groups especially like in the um historically in the 70s and things like that yeah there must be a lot of money's made through that way no, no, that's right I mean, lots of governments say we don't pay we don't pay but most governments do uh, and, it, and it's a self-perpetuating sort of problem you know so the more you pay the more it goes on and the more more these groups do and uh, yeah, it's it's a real problem, and you know, kidnapping big business. You know, where when you're looking at millions and millions of pounds are paid. Yeah, yeah. Um, what sort of measures do you think are taking place at the moment to sort of stop further attacks in Europe and the UK? Well, you've got lots and lots of. Um, we, we in the UK now we have these sort of counter terror hubs, uh, and they're gradually expanding. Um, so <clears throat> they were set up after the problems we had in, in sort of 2005 when we had the, the, the bombings in London, and we found that there was a, sort of a problem with the way that uh, the special branches acted. Um, they, they acted as a buffer between the police and the security service, so they, they were disbanded, and we, we had these counter-terror hubs instead. And so the intelligence sharing was much better. And, and gradually what's happened is um, uh, the Metropolitan Police, which had the national remit for, for counter-terror across the country, is now they, they tend to be uh, very much focused in London. And you have the, the counter-terror hubs, which are staffed with, with police officers from their, from their regional forces. Um, and as, as the, um, the attack methods have, have gradually changed, you know, we've gone from the big spectacular bombing attacks um, with explosives and we've moved down now to sort of um, people wanting to acquire weapons, go into crowded places and shoot people. Uh, and then you know, and even further, 
um, more primitive and they, you know, gaining vehicles or gaining knives and, and wanting to attack people in, in, in that way. And so gradually as that's happened, as, as the, the method of attack has, has changed over time over the last 10 years, is we've had to um, boost the, the capability of what these counter-terror hubs can do. And, and now we see, we see these, um, the, these firearms units attached to the counter-terror units and, and they're very much trained in, in, in dealing with um, the way that these attacks could take place, you know, um, they would, once upon a time, policemen were trained um, simply to defend themselves, but um, their counter-terror uh, firearms officers, they're, they're trained to go forward and to, and to preemptively kill people and to take people out before they can hurt others. Because mm, I suppose there's been a big fear since that Mumbai attack, hasn't there, that something like that might happen eventually? Yeah, well, um, even, even, before, even before Mumbai, I think there, there was lots of, uh, 2007, wasn't it, Mumbai or somewhere around there. Um, but even, even before Mumbai, in, in the intelligence community, there, there was an awful lot of talk. Um, I, I remember even before we had the attacks in London, there was an awful lot of talk of that, that you know, that's what terrorists were looking towards. You know, they'd realised that, that trying to manage manufacture explosives, trying to uh, maintain bomb makers able to, to set off a device, because setting off a device is actually quite a difficult thing to do, especially setting it off remotely. Um, you know, to having these, training these people to do that, it was much easier to train them to, to shoot people. Uh, so it, there was an awful lot of talk before Mumbai, uh, and, and, and you know, we, we didn't see it really in, in sort of too much in, in the Western sort of world until you know, there was the attack on the Jewish Museum in Brussels or France, I can't remember which. I think it was the first time that we saw some of the shooting attack in, in Europe. Uh, but gradually that's become more and more the norm. And, you know, you, you combined it with people wearing suicide vests and, and things like that. But very, very fortunately it hasn't happened in the UK yet. Yeah. And do you think, well, here's, this might be sort of going off topic, do you think our strict firearm laws are helping to stop terrorists from oh, getting weapons? Without a shadow of a doubt, yeah. yes. Uh, I mean, we, we, we do have the best laws in the world. And even you talk to the Americans and they say, well, you know, it doesn't, guns don't kill people. And that's, you know, people kill people. And, you know, people can kill, kill people with anything. If, if you had access to firearms, you know, we, we would have an, uh, you know, a lot more murders, people deciding to go and shoot people, you know, that upset them. Um, you know, our strict firearms laws are, are, are a massive benefit to our country and, and we, we'd be mad to surrender any, any of those. Yeah, yeah, no, it just, <laughs> sorry, I'll go and start off the top of now, but I mean, you know, you sometimes look at America and just like the, the, the fact you can go and buy a military grade weapon in a supermarket is just shocking to me. Well, that, I, I agree totally. I mean, I've I come back from the States and, and, and I love the place. It really is a, a lovely place. And, um, but, uh, you know, they, 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 the, the firearms industry over there, it's a huge multi-billion dollar industry. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and, and again, when you're, when you're trying to dismantle um, multi-billion dollar industries, you're going to get people to turn around and say, well, this is, you know, this is our livelihood. This is not what we want to do. And, and we're quite happy with 30,000, 40,000 people a year being killed with firearms, you know, not necessarily murdered, but we, we, we you know, these, these deaths are, you know, it's what, what, it's what we're used to and we don't, it's not a problem for us. You know, but imagine that here in this country, 30 or 40,000 deaths by firearms a year. Yeah, it's just an incredible figure, and, and that's, that's just crazy. But, um, but I think trying to design that out of the American culture, yeah, you really have got your work cut out. I mean, I, I'm not sure that either of us will see it in our lifetime. No, I don't think we will. Is, is the weird thing about 
it's we really are off about, but the weird thing I've noticed about American guns, it seems to be in the in Europe, guns seem to be more about sporting, whilst in the US it seems to be about personal defence and against like it is. yeah, the person's yeah. unknown and the government, and that's where I think it's gone that, wrong. That's right, yeah, and, 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 and I, I, I do remember I, I, a couple of years back, I got into a huge argument with a, with an American taxi driver. And um, and he and he he was like you know if our government falls uh, we will defend ourselves with our weapons and it's like uh, you know what do you, you know for us for for over here it's like what do you mean when the government falls you know it's like what are you talking about yeah. but I I guess you know so, you know the the society is set up very differently there you, you, you know you have the local police force which might only have I don't know ten people in it. Um, and, and, and they might all live next door to you. And I, and I, and I guess the society is set up a, a bit differently and we, and we shouldn't mock them. Yeah. But for, for, our, for us, for the way our society is set up and the, the way we know our society works, I mean, you know, the breakdown of law and order, the failure of government, you know, having no food in the shops um, and, and, the, and the water system stopping working. I mean, both of us can think, well, what, when? It's Armageddon, isn't it? When, when yeah. would that happen? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, um, yeah, you know, that's, you know, that's, that's in, in some Americans, certainly that taxi driver, I suppose, too. <laughs> you know, he thinks, thinks that could happen tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a strange, it's a strange world, and they have a very different, different set of ideas to what we do here. <laughs> they do indeed. They do indeed. Um, just coming back on to, on to the topic again. This is quite a serious one. But um, how real is the terrorist threat to the UK at the moment? Because the head of the Metropolitan Police was sort of saying in July that it is more a case of when, not if, an attack. Sure, I don't necessarily think it's a case of, of when. I mean, we, we the threat, the threat has been the same. There is always the threat. Uh, and, 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 um, sort of trying to say, well, you know, we've been lucky or we've been unlucky or however you want to see it. And we, we do have some, uh, fantastic people, uh, that worked on this, this stuff 24 seven. Um, and, and I think if we continue doing the, the things that we do in the right way, I, I, I think it is possible to, to keep, keep capturing these people and keep disrupting the plots. Um, but we have got to keep talking to each other and we have got to start winning as well the hearts and minds of, of, of Muslims in this country. Uh, and, and a lot of people in the media, they tend to sort of paint Islam as being a problem and painting all Muslims as being the issue. And that, and that absolutely is not the case. Um, all of the information or a lot of the information that we had in any of the investigations that I was ever involved in, you know, came from people in the Muslim community that were, were absolutely dead against what, what goes on. It's a bit like blaming all Catholics for the IRA. I mean, it's, ridic- it's a ridiculous thought, but for some reason that's taken hold in in, the, in, the, in sort of parts of the media and, and certainly parts of social media if you go and look at it uh, and, it, and it's wrong um, so so I, I think I think we it, it, I don't think it's not a case of when I think it's a case of we just need to keep doing the things that we're doing and we need mm. to keep working together mm. Mm. well said and and in a way I feel like you've touched this but I'll ask it anyway um, is there anything you think needs to change in the British approach to counter-terrorism I uh, Again, going back to what I was saying earlier, I, I really would like to see um, the, the the relationship with uh, the criminal justice system and the security service. I'd, li- I'd like to see a, a unit 
set up inside the security service that could deal with how um, how they how they could interface with the, with the justice system and how they could deal with converting what some of what they have themselves in, in, into evidence so the police don't have to redo it. Uh, and, I, and I'd, li- I'd like to see uh, phone tap evidence used used as evidence in court, um, just the same as it is in, in any other country in the world. Um, and you know we we use evidence from other other countries <laughs> that have, have tapped phones, you know America and France and places like that in in our courtrooms. You know why can't we do it uh, with our own security service? And I think that way we 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 wouldn't we'd get it we'd we'd prosecute an awful lot more people. We'd we'd gain a lot more support from um, communities which currently see the security services as, as something big and bad and something that, that no one really understands and, and, and against Islam and all that sort of stuff. Um, so that I'd like I'd like to see that relationship change. Yeah, good. And there's been a lot of criticism, both fair and unfair, levelled at the intelligence service and the police against um, the vice of terrorism. Um, Particularly in relation to digital privacy, this debate kind of comes up. Um, what do you think the public are getting right? Do you think they're getting wrong on the debate about sort of law enforcement and the fight against terrorism? Um, well, I th- I, the, the debate, the, the problem is the debate in the in the papers. It, it tends to be um, it tends to be very polarised. You know, we, there, there's very little middle ground in, in in these debates. And so, you know, on one side of it, um, you have kind of, you know, you, you've got you've got the the Anjum Chowdhury type people on one on one side of it, and, and sort of they're saying, you know, what, what their beliefs about women's rights are, uh, you know, the way the way that you know Islam should be interpreted and things like that. And and then you can kind of and, and partly you some of the left wing, you know, side up with that. Um, you know, and 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 any anyone seen as sort of trying to sort of shout that down, as it were, is seen as right wing, and and you kind of get these you kind of get these two poles, uh, and, and very few people in the middle sort of get heard. And I think I think really the fight is is, is trying to find a middle ground and trying to find these sensible policies and sensible people in order to sort of talk about, let's talk about prevent, if it's not working, you know, the prevent strategy in this country, the prevent isn't the problem, prevent isn't, isn't radicalising people, um, it's, it, but, you know, it's parts of the, part of the left-wing media um, and, and the extremists, they don't, they don't want prevent to work. Um, and, you know, and you've got, you kind of, not, you've not got these, uh, these moderate voices uh, that we need to hear to try and sort of keep the debate from polarising one way or the other. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And with regards to, I don't know if, if you're happy going into this bit, um, with the debate about like digital privacy as well, because I, I feel there's a lot of histrionics to some extent about um, since Snowden and things like that, we sort of get this one debate saying, you know, the government just are spying on you and yada, yada, yada. And, and then you kind of get the other side where you have the police saying that we need to do these things to stop terrorism. Kind of, what do you, is there a middle ground, do you think? Or? Well, I, don't, I don't think there is. Let, let me give you an example. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I'll ask you a question. Okay. And, and, you know, <laughs> perhaps, perhaps your listeners can, can ask that, that question for themselves. So I'll, take, take you back, I'll take you back to 2005, uh, our Thursday morning. Um, and, and four people, um, put, put backpacks on and they go and murder 52 people, 52 passengers traveling to work on the tubes, uh, and, and the, and the, on a bus, um, and, and a blade of pieces. And, and, and then, you know, that, that was, uh, July the 7th. Um, now, although we knew who these people were, 
Um, and I say we knew who these people were in terms of, you know, there were traces of them when we actually look back. There were traces of these people on intelligence databases. Um, how did we or how would we find who helped them? How would, how would we retrospectively go back and say, right, okay, these people have slipped through the net that we try to cast in order to catch violent extremists and, 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 to, and to catch people doing these, these plots and these crimes. How do we retrospectively go back and find out who they've been talking to? Who they who they purchased their their materials from, and who else was involved in that? If if we can't retain stuff over a certain date, you know, if we if we if we can't if we can't go somewhere, if we can't go to places like GCHQ and say that IP address there, we know his IP address. We we found his IP address on his computer and we searched his address. Can you tell me? I want to know every time that IP address has done something. Well, that information is held by people like GCHQ, you know, the government listening service. It's held, it's held by, you know, the, the secret intelligence service, MI6 uh, uh, Vauxhall. You know, it's held, it's, you know, the, it, when you, you have this retention of data and things, you know, if, if we can't retain that sort of data, um, how do we go back and retrospectively investigate things? And, and, and you'll say, well, yeah, but they're, they're terrorists. We didn't, yes, but, if we don't, we don't know who, if somebody slips through the net, we don't, we don't know who that's going to be. You know, the bottom, if, if, if somebody, if one today, I decide I'm going to go on the course of violent extremism, you know, and the data on me hasn't been retained for the last two years or the last 12 months or whatever you want to call it. How, how do you investigate my background if, if, if I've, if I've done this myself? How do you see who it is that I've been talking to and who it is I've been communicating with if we haven't retained that data in the first place? And then, you know, and conversely, how do you then stop the next attack? <laughs> and, and, and that, you know, really that is the answer. When, 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 somebody, when somebody says to you, well, you know, I don't want my data um, recorded and, and kept in a, in a pot, you know, for somebody to go and have a look at if I've done something wrong. Well, you know, unfortunately, that is the way of the world. You know, communications data has changed. You know, we, we talk to each other on Skype. We talk to each other on, on you know, using apps across the Internet. Um, you know, we, we send text messages and, and things like that to each other. And then if there's quite simply, if that sort of thing isn't retained, then you can't expect the, the, the security service, you can't expect the police to retrospectively go back and find this information if it's never been retained in the first place. So uh, my, 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 my answer is I've got absolutely no problem with, with data retention and mass surveillance, as people call it. You know, GCHQ has, has a ton of information on all of us, you know, from cradle to grave. Um, and it's not accessible to, to people like me um, investigating straightforward crimes or anything like that. But when we come to matters of national security, when we come to um, talking about people wanting to blow people up on tubes, trains and buses, um, who were they talking to? You know, who was it in Pakistan that assisted them in doing this? Which training camp did they go to? Who in their local community have encouraged them to do this? You know, how do we stop it happening again? And that, that is what mass surveillance is about. Mm. And it's not, as you're saying, it's not easily accessible. So there's a kind of like a legal exactly. process to get to the stage. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Mm. But, but it is, it is, it's, you know, it, it's so valuable and, and we, we couldn't possibly ever operate without it. Yeah, yeah. What... This kind of makes me sort of um, 
this whole debate here often makes me sort of think about people on the front line and counterterrorism themselves and the kind of people who dedicate themselves to this fight. And I really appreciate your thoughts on what we've been talking about today. Um, let's talk a little bit about being a counterterrorism officer. What what kind of people are they and what makes a good counterterrorism officer and what kind of skills they typically have? Uh, well, I, I think I, I see it slightly differently and um, because uh, a lot of people uh, see uh, the, just, uh, the front line of the, the fight against terrorism as, as being the two security services, you know, the, the, the Secret Intelligence Service or MI6 and, and the, the, the security service MI5. A lot of people seeing them as the, as the only fights uh, against it and then, you know, and the police being really arrest teams and sort of eating out of their hand. Um, I, I don't necessarily agree with that. You know, the, the, some of the... Uh, um, the assessments made by both security services are wrong, um, and um, we, we have some brilliant analysts uh, in, in this country, and, and there's lots and lots of things going on in the background, which I can't really talk to yeah, you of about. Course, of course. <laughs> um, there, there's lots of things that go on in the background, yeah. certainly within the police, um, you know, the, the exploitation of, of, other, of other digital uh, intelligence that they're doing, you know, really, really important work. And so, so I think... Um, a good uh, a good counterterrorist officer is somebody who's inquisitive. It's somebody who does who can see through the veneer of what is actually going on here. They don't focus on the religion. They don't focus on on you know the the, the political necessarily the political motivations that that there are that are immediately obvious. There's something go, there's something else going on, and, and when you understand why, you can find out who. But it, it is it's trying to start find out why this has happened. Mm. And it's a bit of an out there question, but what is it like to actually investigate terrorism? What kind of toll does it take on a person when you investigate these kind of things? I, it's very easy to become, uh, uh, I'll say racist for another word, really. I mean, prejudice rather than racist. But it's very, it's very easy to sort of find yourself in the, in the place, especially when, you know, it, it, it is, um, you know, I'm, a, I'm a white Christian officer, um, you know, I've lived in London most of my life, you can probably hear from my accent, um, I've lived in London most of my life, and then when, when, you, when you go up into these isolated communities in Leeds or West Yorkshire or Manchester, Birmingham, um, and, and everyone's a different colour, um, and, and, you know, a different religion, uh, and it's, it's very easy to become prejudiced and, and, to, and to sort of see people differently. And, um, I, I think the sort of toll that it can take on you year after year after year is, is it can make you sort of view life very differently. And I think you do have to fight really, really, really hard to sort of recognise the fact that these are criminals. You know, this, is, this isn't the fact that they're a different colour. This isn't the fact that they're a different religion. These are criminals and, and, the, and they're operating in, this, in these communities and these communities are as scared of these people as, as the rest of us. Um, uh, and, you know, and, and to not see yourself as different, we're all humans, we're all human beings, and, and, and we, we've got to work together to sort this out. And so I think that, I think the toll that it can take on it can, it can be very draining. Um, and you, and you, have, you have to fight these constant battles with yourself about what, what am I really seeing here and what am I really listening to here. Um, but uh, more than that, I think that um, certainly with, with counter-terrorism work, you know, we do travel. Uh, extensively, you know, they, they, we're away from our, our families a lot. Um, uh, we spend an awful lot of time in hotels, uh, and, you know, and I, I lived in a hotel, one hotel room for two years. 
Um, and I can tell you that, you know, uh, once you've got past the first couple of nights from the comfy pillows and the, and a nice clean bed sheet, it is no fun whatsoever. Um, yeah, we're probably not talking about the Hilton, are we? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, definitely not. But, um, but it's, uh, you know, it, it, it can take a massive toll on you. And, and I think, you know, and that's, that's when, that's when I think, you know, all sorts of problems can, can take place when you, when you're away from, from family and, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to, Every single day, you've got your face in, in, in what's going on, and, and it, it, it's the underbelly of life. Um, and, and, and a lot of capture officers, they don't, they don't have the release that ordinary police officers have. You know, especially if they're living away from home a lot and investigating it a lot. You know, uh, ordinary police officer, you know, he can, he can go away from the area that he polices. He goes home to his wife, or his family, or you know, whoever. And, um, and, and that, that's his, that's his escape, that's his release until he goes back the next morning. But with, I think with counter officers, it's very different. So it can, it can be very, very difficult. And you're kind of investigating the dark side of humanity, aren't you, in a way? So it's, uh, yeah, it must take its toll a lot if you haven't got anybody to sort of talk to about these things afterwards. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, you, you get all sorts of problems with substance abuse and alcohol abuse and all, all those sorts of things because that, that often becomes as the only, the only release and the only escape. And, you know, I, I talk a lot about that in my book. Yes. Uh, my books and, 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 uh, it, it's, it's a key point. Um, and, off, you know, police officer, account terrorist officers, mental well-being is a, is a really important point. Yeah. Well, Let's talk about your book because we, um, I, you know, because um, I was going to ask you about what is it like investigating seven seven twenty one seven, but I think you could probably better answer that by talking about your book a little bit because um, your book, the thesis paradox, which I really enjoyed, kind of goes into this, doesn't it? It gives us a fictional account of what it's like to to investigate terrorism, but there's a lot of I felt a lot of personal truth behind that. Do you want to tell us about this book and and about what it was like to investigate seven seven twenty one seven? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, it, it's a very personal account. Um, and I, I, you know, my tagline for the book is, "I can't, I can't tell you the truth, but I can tell you a story." Um, and that the reason for that is, is, is I can't, by law, tell you uh, the facts. I can't say to you, "This is what I know and this is what I did," but the, the because of the Official Secrets Act, but the Official Secrets Act isn't allowed to interfere with my artistic right to to write a fictional story. Um, so. Um, it, it's really a matter for the only person that knows how much of that book is fact and how much of it is fiction is me. Uh, and, and, I, and I kind of hope that when people read it, um, they will go away and research it and say, my God, <laughs> some of this is very close to the truth. It is, it's a very personal account of, of a fictional police officer um, who, who uh, goes out to work one day, um, you know, and, and he's, he's sort of immersed suddenly in, in, in death and destruction um, and, and very, very upset about the fact that, you know, it's happened on his watch. Um, it's, it's happened when he wasn't able to stop it. Uh, and, you know, there were warnings beforehand and, you know, he, he's very upset about that. And it takes a huge toll on him as an individual. Um, and, and it becomes a, a sort of a personal battle, a personal vendetta against these, these unseen people about, you know, why on earth has this happened and, and why didn't we stop it? And then, and then you know, and why, why wasn't I able to, to, to do something about it? Um, and, it, it, it and it talks about um, you know the toll it takes on him as an individual, and, and and what's going on. You know because what a lot of people forget is is that counter terrorist officers were just normal people. 
Um, there's normal people who are doing an extraordinary jobs. So that doesn't mean to say we've got ordinary lives. You know, our lives are just as ordinary as everybody else's. You know, in the background, we've got, we've got deaths of parents and deaths of, you know, uh, relatives. Um, we, we've got marriages that are falling to pieces and children that we don't see. Uh, and childcare issues uh, and all of those sorts of things, you know, problems with paying the bills, um, you know, the car's broken down, the battery's packed up on the car, um, you know, the wife's on the phone complaining that you haven't spent any time with her and you've forgotten her birthday, forgotten the anniversary, all of those really normal things um, that are also going on normally in the background, but at the same time as this very, very extraordinary event that, that that's, that's, you know, that we all remember. Um, and you're trying to try to deal with and juggle with all of those balls and and the difficulties that 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 presents to an individual that suddenly finds himself in the middle of all that. So that's really what the book is about um, from a, from a personal perspective. But it also talks about you know why really did we really understand what seven seven was about? Was there any connection between twenty one seven? You know the failed uh, the people who tried to copycat the event. Um, exactly two weeks later or 32 weeks later um, but, um, but it's a very personal account it's, it's very much written uh, for the reason of uh, I want people to understand what terrorism is about is I don't want people just seeing the religious face of it I don't want these organised criminals uh, turning our society on its head and being able to and I don't want certain sections of our community to get away with being able to say well you know it was the, it was the Muslims that did this and it was the Christians that decided to do this and all of those sorts of things so there's lots of really really important personal messages in there as well yeah yeah there's a particularly there's a very interesting scene actually. You just talk about that, where uh, is it? Di Flanagan um, goes to visit a um, a witness who has BNP connections, I think, from memory, and they're having a cup of tea. And at first, this guy seems quite reasonable, and then there's a whole different side to him. Um, That's right. Yeah, yeah, and that was a, that was a very interesting scene. I thought actually. Um, a very important scene in the book because you kind of nicely, exactly. yeah, you nicely exactly. show things, yeah. Yeah, it, about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't want to spoil for anyone. I mean, I'd love as many people to read it as possible. Really, that's really important. But it, it, there are, you know, extremism uh, comes in all shapes and sizes, and 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 it, and, it, and it affects different communities as well. You know, when when we talk about extremism, we you know we, we've got we've got to look at extremists in, in, in every pocket of society uh, and, and you know they, they it's kind of you you have this battle with with the, the character you know jake flanagan in the middle um who, who wants to he wants to understand what's going on but you, you've got you've got this constant battle with extremists on both sides you know but you've got extreme right wing and you've got the extremist islamists and um and kind of you know they're, they're the already in between the two of them and and in the middle the truth is there somewhere and and so so it is really it's, it's a very interesting story but it's a very personal story yeah excellent well look, david thank you so much for joining me today um where can our listeners find out more about you and your book uh, right, you can go to uh, the thesis paradox is my is, is the book that is is on sale right now. Um, and that, you can go to Amazon and you can buy that on Amazon. Um, you can also find out more about me on on davidvideset.com. Uh, and then don't forget that you know I have got a, a, um, a the sequel to my book 
which is coming out in the early part of 2017, which deals with another real-life case. Uh, and it's also a very personal story and a continuation of the thesis paradox. I, I like the real-life cases, you know, because they, we, we, again, the media sees them in a very... Um, uh, a very a very fine way, uh, and and, and I, like, I like to scratch under the surface and look at and lift up the rug, and sort of say what is really going on here, and and, and that's what I did with with the, the seven seven and twenty one seven bombings, and and that's what I do with the next book. But um, it also deals with a lot of um, the things that were left unsaid in the first book, you know, because as I said, it's a very personal account. Um, and you've got the lives of people running through these very extraordinary events which were going on um, in our country and in London particularly. Um, and, and, and obviously we pick up uh, the lives of the characters and, and what, what's going on in their lives as well. So it's really good. Brilliant. Well, David, thank you so much for chatting with me today. I really enjoyed that. And um, yeah, thank you. I'm good. Okay. If you've enjoyed the show, please spread the word by connecting with us on Twitter by going to at DryCleanerCast. For more information about the podcast, please visit our website, www.drycleanercast.co.uk. Thank you for listening to the Dry Cleaner Cast. 